0: Well, as people who call themselves spiritual, or believers that life is more than organic, um, specifically here, we ascribe to what we refer to as a progressive spirituality. And a progressive spirituality could be described in a lot of ways, but the way that I understand it is we're a group of people who have a sense, an intuition that this this is a creation, that, that this is a creation and therefore there is some sense, there is a base, there is an underpinning, there is a, a creative force, God, we call that, uh, that is at the base of all of this. And this is more than organic, it's more than just corporeal or material, uh, it is what we refer to as spiritual and that's a worn out word for sure. But as we think about the source at the base of all this, those who ascribe to a progressive spirituality hold God ultimately as mystery. For all of the things that we hold God as, we indeed hold God as mystery. We we resonate with texts like Isaiah 55, as high as the heavens are above the earth, God said I am above you. My ways aren't your ways, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. So there's this sense of ineffability or unspeakability or unknowability as it relates to God. And yet a part of progressive spirituality is not only to admit what I refer to as a reverent agnosticism. Now that just scares people to death when they hear a preacher talk about agnosticism, but agnosticism in the strictest sense of the word. Ah gnosis, I don't know. We are believers, you and me. Some claim to know, but most of us are believers. Um, Our great teacher, our Lord, Uh, even called us not to know, but to believe. If somebody asked me, do you know it's going to rain tomorrow? I would say, well, I don't know it's going to rain. I believe it's going to rain. You see the difference? Belief is a measure of conviction somewhere between one and 99. But to say you believe omits zero and 100 because zero and 100 are certain. But in the absence of certainty, we have faith, we have a sense of conviction. And there are some things that we're convicted about in the 99% range, there are some things we're convicted about in the 2% range, right? We don't hold all things at the same level of conviction. So in that reverent agnosticism, which also incorporates a very deep theism, an admission of not knowing, there's also this sense that God as mystery is to be explored, and so we are explorers. We are people who love to explore and to um, mine the depths of the spirit. And not only do we believe that God is a mystery to be explored, but we also believe life is the gift of God and life is to be enjoyed. And that as such, love is our ultimate strength and life is to be shared. That's progressive spirituality. Now, there are people who are deeply spiritually minded and deeply progressive and share those thoughts who are not religious, and we understand the difference, right? There are people who, for whatever reason, personality or experience or their own rational construction, they no longer believe in organized religion. One of the things about progressive spirituality that progressive religion has noticed is, it's very true, as religion moves progressive and adapts progressive spirituality, we often end up working ourselves out of a job. I have shared this spirituality with lots of people who as a result of adopting these ideas no longer feel a need to do organized religion. Now, my perspective on that I think it's I think it's an overreaction personally but I get it because for a lot of people traditional religion has included so much shame and so much guilt as it relates to things that we organize and do like going to church and reading the bible and praying I think there's an entire generation or two of people who have adopted a progressive spirituality that have reacted against organized religion because it it just feels good. You remember when you finally realized you could miss church on Sunday morning and not miss the rapture? (laughs) And you can build, right, Butch? You can build up an inertia. And I actually often say in my own journey, the year I took off from organized church and going to church was a very powerful and pivotal moment in my spiritual experience. I eventually came back I'm not sure if that's because I couldn't make a living or long for it, but I came back. I wasn't really wanting to be a barista at Starbucks, so I came back. But I think it was more than that for me. I'm sure there was a mix of motives, but there was something that I missed. So there are a lot of people uh, that people like me have worked ourselves out of a job um, in relationship to them. Um, But there are other people who hold a progressive spirituality that also still believe maybe to a lesser extent, but they still believe in progressive religion. They still believe in religion. And if you think about it, religion in its strictest sense is simply the institution or the organization or the construct by which a group of people gather and with some sense of system promote spirituality, right? So progressive religion is the institution, the organization of the construct whereby groups of people gather together and promote spirituality. Now, if the religion begins to promote the religion, that's what we all kind of have gotten nauseated with, isn't it? And and yet, the promotion of the spirituality and the religion, the wine, and sometimes the wine seeps so into the wineskin that they, they almost become one, they become entangled. And that's why some of us have have taken hiatuses from the church. It wasn't because we didn't believe in the church, it was because we needed to untangle the difference between what was spirituality, what was the church, what was the wine, what was the wineskin, what was God, and what was the construct. Um, I often say, as an example, you know, uh, a university is not synonymous with education. A university is an institution. It's an educational institution. And what it's promoting is education, but the university itself is not education. It's the institution by which education is promoted. A hospital. A hospital is not health care. A hospital is the institution, the system by which health care is promoted. A music hall is not music. But thank God for the music halls that nurture and facilitate the expression of music. And a church, a synagogue, a mosque is not spirituality. But thank God for institutions and constructs. They're groups of people gathered together to promote spirituality. Progressive religions. One note about progressive religions is that they are generally pluralistic. They are humbly pluralistic, Chris, in their vision of religion and spirituality. Uh, Progressive Buddhists, progressive Christians, progressive Jews, uh, progressive Muslims even. There are progressive Muslims. We had one speak here two years ago. But those who are a part of progressive religion have a pluralistic view Uh, in the sense that they believe there is the divine, they believe there is the human, they believe those two are magnetically attracted together, and, and they believe that through the magnetic attraction of the divine and the human, they believe that experiences happen and experiences have been happening throughout human history that are so profoundly moving that they have to be told. Anybody ever had one of those experiences? I've had a few in the course of my lifetime. So profound, Buck, that I knew that I had engaged the other side, only to find out the other side was inside of me all along, but I knew I had engaged the holy other, the numinous, as Otto called it. Those experiences are so profound that they have to be shared, and in the sharing of those stories, people are provoked to tell their own stories and to explore God, And what happens in a culture over time is those experiences and those stories accumulate. And as those stories accumulate within a group of people, within a context, within a culture, eventually, after generations of that, religions form. And those religions are simply the outgrowth of the accumulation of a culture's story as it relates to God. Now, all a progressive religionist does is look at their own stories, knowing how profound they are, and Aaron, they ask themselves the question, are we the only people? And is this articulation of this experience, it would be like all English-speaking people looking at all French-speaking people and all Spanish-speaking people and saying, you know what, only our language can express love and life. It is only our menu, our context, our culture, our way of seeing the world. Our alphabet is the only alphabet. You think about extreme Islam. They take it to such an extent that their book cannot even be translated into another language. See where the wine seeps into the wineskin? Now the wineskin. That language itself becomes holy. And you cannot even write the Koran in a different language lest you taint it. Progressive religionists don't feel this. They are incredibly moved by their story. They may even think their story is the coup de grace and the greatest story. But ultimately, they let go of the hubris that the wind of the spirit would be dictated and contained by the whimsy of things like geography and time. They just can't imagine that the divine would be so capricious that only one group of people, one place, would finally have that experience and all other experiences would be nullified. That's progressive religion. As we explained earlier, in progressive religion, the thing that distinguishes one progressive religion from another progressive religion is not that overarching view. I often say that I am unashamedly Christian and I am unapologetically interfaith, and the latter is caused by the former. I'll say that again. I am unashamedly Christian and I am unapologetically interfaith, and the latter, my interfaithness, is the result of my Christianity. It is not the opposite of. So progressive religions respect one another, value one another. That's why this church can have somebody like a Jewish lady like A.J. Levine come and speak to us very deeply. And we're not, I remember when we used to have these interfaith experiences, we were always hoping, Chris, if we had that Muslim or that Jew come and speak, that one of our songs just might get them. And we, you know, they would be converted. But how moving it was for A.J. Levine to stand here and say, I do not share the ultimate perspective on Jesus that you do, but I value him deeply. And I'm very moved by the fact that in Matthew 25, he said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. And those are his words for judgment. Not well believed, she said, but well done. And she said, in the end, if I do indeed realize that he was the second person of some mysterious Godhead, she said, I will defer. But she said, ultimately, even your text tells me that at judgment, he will say, I was in prison and you visited me. And she said, I've been going to prisons for 30 years teaching them your New Testament. She said, so I think I will be fine with your Lord. (laughs) Those are the kinds of experiences that choke us a little bit and yet, down inside all of us have been feeling for a long time, there's something very right about that. A little uncomfortable, but there's something right about that. The thing that distinguishes us as progressive religions, the thing that distinguishes me from AJ Levine, and we do have our distinctions, the thing that distinguishes me from my moderate to progressive Muslim friends is we have different narratives, overlapping narratives sometimes, similar creation myths, similar books. As with the Jewish family, we use their Hebrew text. As a matter of fact, we admit that their Hebrew text was the text of the early Christian church. Though there is overlap, we have distinctions as, religion, uh, as religions with our narratives. Um, we have distinct stories that are moving to us, that are our story. We also, as I've I've said, we have a glossary of terms. We have a lexicon, we have a vocabulary. There are words that we use that are distinct to us. And and finally, this is what I wanted to point to a little bit today. Progressive religions hold the distinction of carrying their own set of symbols. That's why this year we really thought through the idea of having a Thursday evening, What's the service before Easter? i uh, drawn a blank. Monday, Thursday. A Monday, Thursday service and our own, um, gosh, where are we joining? Come on, help me. Seder. Yeah, our own Seder. Uh, again, y'all ought to try this sometime. It's not the easiest thing. <laughs> Cerebral capacity goes way down when a couple hundred people are staring at you. Um, but we, we really thought through Seder. I enjoy Seders. But Dave, we decided if we're gonna enjoy a Seder, we probably ought to enjoy it with a Jewish synagogue or temple somewhere. Because classically, now we don't do it this way. Brian Cochran does a beautiful job of capturing it within a progressive Christian form. But Christians for years have been doing Seders and the gist of the Seder has been our Jewish cousins, we can't quite call them brothers and sisters, our Jewish friends, Our Jewish friends have been doing Seder for 20 to 25 centuries, maybe more. In its present form, maybe 17 to 18 centuries. But we finally figured out how to do it and we do it fulfilled. So it's one religion looking at another religion, taking their symbol, their tool, their sacrament and saying, good attempt your first 1700 years but now we're going to bring it to fruition that would be like you know a a mosque or a a hindu temple or maybe a jewish synagogue taking communion and saying you guys have been doing this for 2,000 years but if you come over and sit in the back we will show you what baptism really means because we are now the last of the mohicans of revelation and we have finally understood what you've always missed. You see how that could be a little distasteful. So I don't want somebody doing that with baptism, and I don't want somebody doing that with communion. So I'm fine to let my brothers and sisters in the other religions have their symbols. And if I want to experience them and appreciate them, I will go and let them teach me that, and I'll stick with my own. Does that make sense? So what are our, our symbols? Our, our symbols are things like communion, baptism, Jesus certainly. And one of the biggies is not this whole thing, but this, this part of this thing called the New Testament. This is one of our tools. It's one of our symbols. And the Bible, we call it. And I've got to say in this season of Easter tide, that while there are a lot of significant lessons to be learned, because remember, Eastertide is that season of disorientation. It, it's even more specifically the season when disorientation begins to move into reorientation. When religious spiritual deconstruction begins to move into reconstruction. I mean the The real season of disorientation is that last week of Jesus' life when his disciples are trying to get him to be who they want him to be and he's going the opposite direction. And then the the apex, I mean the crescendo of the disorientation was when they laid him in a tomb and they had to go back to their nets. Scratching their heads saying, what in the world was that? And what have we been doing the last three, maybe even more years of our life. Eastertide, that season between resurrection and ascension, is that gracious gift of God that is not only a historical lesson from scripture, but it is a recurring archetype in our life. It is that season when the Jesus we have lost is being reframed. When the life that we knew and is no more is having to be reappropriated and reoriented to. Remember, the, the brilliance of the Bible is that it is not simply a historical narrative to be read, it, it doesn't just give us a bunch of stories to be remembered and regurgitated. When I knew the Bible that way and I memorized the Bible that way, I found myself living as a harbinger of truth vicariously through the experiences of people who lived thousands of years ago. And and I thought really the only thing that I had to do was just know their experience, memorize their experience and receive the distilled truth that I was supposed to hold on to and and a Fort Knox of soul of sort and deliver back to God one day as a possessor of truth. In my own deconstruction, I can tell you that one of the first things 20 years ago as a young minister that I began to lose was my grip on the Bible. One of the first things about our religion that really began to bother me was the Bible. The highly literalized reading of the text that my little group ascribed to was something that began to wear thin for me. I read stories about God, I read first century edicts by apostolic messengers that simply began to wear thin and did not make sense to me. And I've gotta tell you, in my own process of deconstruction and disorientation, this book has been one of the biggest problems. Um, I will say, as a reorienting person, and a reappropriating person, I have satisfyingly, like much of my Christian faith, come back to a very satisfying, loving relationship with this book that I was estranged from for a long time, almost divorced from, and thought I would never recapture. What I now know about this book is it is the story, not just of other lives, it is the story of my life. It's the story of creation continually experiencing a cycle and a process of transformation. And that's why the early church fathers, and I I say that it was really the church fathers, there were very few church mothers, but the early church fathers gave us a Christian calendar. And, And that Christian calendar can be religiously memorized and observed to no good end. You can just move coldly and dryly like cardboard through the seasons of Advent and Christmas and Christmastide and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Eastertide and Pentecost and ordinary time. And you can just regurgitate stories like the Nativity, uh, the baptisms, the temptation of Jesus, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Silent Saturday, Resurrection Sunday, Ascension and Pentecost. Or, you can actually understand that this book is an incredible archetype that tells the story of us all. And every story is not a story to be memorized, every story is a story to be recognized. And I say that again, these are not stories to be memorized, they are stories to be recognized. And the recognition is that, oh my goodness, this is my story. I am the one standing there. I am the one with that bag of silver in my hands. I am the one on that rooftop. I am the one covering myself with fig leaves. I am the one towing the precipice of that river that will not open. I I am the one. So utilizing Holy Scripture properly means entering, not simply reading the text. And once I recognize this, and stop superficially reading the bible as a final constitution or a fundamentalist text once i realized that it was an invitational text that was never intended to end conversations with final answers but was always a holy inspired text that was calling me into the important conversations when i realized that and i understood that it was an invitational beginning, not a constitutional end, the book began to feel differently to me. You see, our Jewish roots and our Jewish Lord root us in a text. We are many things as followers of Jesus within the religion of Christianity, but one of them is that we are a people who believe God God communicates, and one of the mediums through which God communicates is literature, and A sacred piece of literature that is central to our process is this text called the Bible. We believe that there are difficult issues in life. And we believe that neither God nor the Bible pretend to answer these hastily, offhandedly, or glibly, or finely. I'll give you an example of that these are the things that begin to warm me back to the scripture and ultimately lead, led me back to actually love this book the apostle paul was a jewish rabbi he was a follower of jesus and as such he pastored and shepherded groups of people one of the groups that he shepherded one of the earliest churches that he founded was a roguish group of people a mix of jews and pagans who had converted to christianity or gentiles A church of probably, as best historians can tell, probably a church of 50 to 100 people in a city uh, in the region of Achaia, just south of the Peloponnesian Peninsula there in Greece, a city called Corinth. And he established a church, and he had to leave the church, and he left the church in the hands of elders and teachers, And eventually in his absence, issues began to arise within the church that led the people to have a multiplicity of questions. And so while he was at Ephesus across the Aegean Sea, there, while he was at Ephesus a few years after he had founded the church, one of the leaders of the church sent a letter to him with questions. And they sent this letter to the apostle Paul with questions and within that letter, One of the questions that I want you to take note of was a question, and the question was very direct and specific, and the question was almost scandalizing to a Jewish, even Jesus, mindset. But the question was, and we think most specifically, the question was, if a woman has converted to Christianity and her husband is not converted and is still a pagan, Can she divorce him? Now, this is an innovative question that is a mix of Jewish history, but also a Greek culture. And it is a strange mix. And let me say it this way. This is a strange request because within the Hebrew culture, it was the male who predominantly, if not completely had the right to divorce his spouse. The only time Moses ever really talked about this was in Deuteronomy 24. And he said, if a man marries a woman and finds anything in her that is displeasing to him or unclean, he can put her away. Ladies, did you notice that that's just one direction? If a man, you see, women in that context were almost chattel slavery and the context in question was, can a man, if he finds something about his wife, now that was a problematic text because like all languages, the Hebrew language morphed over time. Remember, I said this a few Wednesday nights ago, if Shakespeare were here today, four centuries removed from his writing, if Shakespeare were here today, he would only recognize 60% of our English language. 52% of Tennessee English language he would recognize. 48% of Arkansas English language he would recognize. Shakespeare would only recognize about 60% of English language. Why? People, we may have a philologist here, people who study language. You know that even a language shifts over time. And before the time of Jesus, there were two rabbis. There was a conservative named Hillel and there was a uh, liberal named Hillel and a conservative named Shammai. And the camp of rabbis, both Pharisee and Sadducee camps, Zealot camps even, divided between Shammai and Hillel, the liberal and the conservative. And by the time that these rabbis were doing their midrash, their oral Torah, their work on the text, That word in Deuteronomy 24, that word, if a man finds blank about his wife, he can put her away. That Hebrew word had been so unused that its specific meaning was lost. Now, as you might understand, or you might predict, as they were wrestling with one of their words, a Hebrew word that had been lost in translation through the years, and they were wrestling with the ambiguity of that word, the liberal, Hillel, said that that word literally means if he finds something annoying to him. If a man finds something about it, wakes up one morning and thinks to himself, "Mm, I did not enjoy that meal last night, hadn't enjoyed one in a long time. Hillel's camp said, that a man could put away his wife for any reason. As you might suspect. Shammai's camp. The conservative camp said. No, 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 no. no." Read that in the context. What was supposed to be delivered to a man. Was a virgin. And in the Levitical context. Under Moses writing. This, this is the stuff that made me get really annoyed with our book. Just to be honest. This is the stuff that made me think. I don't know that this is a lot different than reading Mein Kampf. This just doesn't feel right. Because in the Mosaic context, a man was supposed to have a a virgin delivered to him. There was an exchange of dowry. It's one of the reasons that I don't like the whole deal of, and I just won't say it anymore, who gives this woman to be the bride of, I I just can't do that part of a wedding ceremony anymore where two men are exchanging a woman. That may not be how we intend it, and it may have sentimental, nostalgic feelings for you, but if you look, that comes, that is a vestige of a bygone era, when women were little more than property. And in the Levitical context, a family maintained a young girl's virginity, they delivered her to the man, there was a dowry exchange, and in the Levitical context, if that man found on the honeymoon night that she was not a virgin, he not only had the ability to put her away, he had the ability to have her stoned and her parents who had knowingly duped him could be brought to the gates of the city and burned. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so in that context, Shemai. The conservative said, it's clearly uncleanness is sexual immorality. If he finds that she has been sexually immoral, isn't it interesting ladies that it didn't work both ways? And the vestiges of that pain still is at the base of the construct of what we call a rape culture. And to think At some point, that's where some of us begin to back away from our religion and say, I can't even be a part of an institution that could even possibly be seen as fostering or nurturing these ideas. That's why there has to be a progressive element to religions. or Those religions need to dissolve and go the way of appendixes and wisdom teeth with all evolution. But I hold out hope. Because as a progressive Christian, I believe, Drew, I still believe that the seeds of our reformation are in the heart of our text and our faith. And I cannot let it go. Shammai said it's for any reason. One day, these two camps wrestling with, whether it was for only sexual immorality or for any cause, as they were wrestling, they realized that the one thing they had in common was their despite for this new guy named Jesus. And these strange allies got together and they said, let's have some fun. Let's common denominator today instead of distinctly numerate. Let's go see if we can trick Jesus and put him on the spot. So, Barbara, those two camps went to Jesus. Matthew 18:19 tells the story. They went to Jesus and they literally sit down. These are not, I want you to notice something about how religion goes bad. Here's what spirituality does. Spirituality brings the brokenness of a marriage and asks God deep questions about pain. That's what spirituality does. Tell you what religion does. Religion takes human pain, moves it over into an abstract conversation and tries to tie up another preacher with it. You see the difference? And so this Matthew 18 text that has been used as a Magna Carta of Jesus describing his feelings about divorce, marriage and remarriage is not that at all. It's actually a tremendous essay on how religion can go wrong. Because this is not the Corinthian situation where a woman is hurting, possibly being abused, and the question is, do I have to stay in this? No, no, no. This is a bunch of preachers sitting around arguing about a text and trying to triangulate with another preacher about an abstraction. Is there anything worse you can do with human pain than use it as a religious game? That's like the blind guy that was sitting on the side of the road and the disciples looked at him and looked at Jesus and they didn't say, could we get the guy some fruit, food? Could we help the guy out today? With no social systems in place. The guy's life was desperate and the disciples looked at him and said, wonder who sinned, his mom, dad, or him. See, there was a long theological debate about did human suffering come as the punishment of God because of some bad thing we had done, and could it be multigenerational? Could the child pay for the parent's sin? I mean, is there any... This is the stuff that we have been running from, folk, with our hair on fire for a while from Christianity, isn't it? And it's not the stuff they did, we did it too. This is the stuff that we're trying to repent of. You don't take a guy that's impaired in sight and desperate in life and turn him into a theological abstraction to argue with Jesus. You know what the message, I thank God for Eugene Peterson and his take on scripture. The message, Eugene Peterson said, Jesus looked at them and said, you're asking the wrong questions. That's that's bad religion at its height. We I used to think bad religion were all the churches that didn't have the right answers like we do. No, no, no. Bad religion isn't about the answers. Bad religion is about folk who don't even know the right questions to ask. And when they do ask questions, they ask them for all the wrong reasons. You know, the worst part of that, that's why... As I've engaged in Facebook media more the last three weeks, I look at the comment section and I think I have got to begin taking some of these trolls off because I don't want another gay kid reading one more piece of crap, especially on my Facebook site. But I, I I want you to think about what that poor transgender kid is doing when he's reading or she's reading through those comments. She is hearing people abstracting the nuances of theology about her most devastating pain. The guy is sitting there. You got to think that the blind guy maybe waved his arms and said, fellas, I'm blind. I'm not deaf. I can hear you. But they didn't care. And Jesus said, you are asking the wrong question." To take Matthew 18 and impose that text on divorcees like me as the Magna Carta and the magnum opus of everything Jesus ever wanted to say about divorce and remarriage is such a tragedy. And we have devastated so many lives through that reading of the Bible. This was not a spiritual dissertation. This was an expose on religion gone wrong. That's what you should get from this text because the Methodist and the Baptist, the Catholics, And the Protestants finally said, there's somebody we hate more than you, and we can combine as strange allies, and we'll fight him. And they came to him with their great dilemma that was unresolved for centuries, and they said, hey, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And if you read the Markan text, Mark was the first gospel written around 65. If you read the Mark text, the Mark text is incredibly more severe. It has Jesus as incredibly more severe in his answer to that question. Maybe sometime I'll just take a Sunday morning and show you that. The Mark text, the earliest written text, has Jesus incredibly severe. The Matthean text, the Matthew text, which was written maybe as much as 10, 15, possibly even 20 years after the Mark text, softens the word of Jesus on this issue. And I wanna tell you about Matthew. Matthew uses 98% of Mark's text verbatim. Matthew alters two or three passages from the Mark text, and this is one of them. And the only thing I can figure is because Matthew and the writer of that text had lived with a community of people another 15 to 20 years. And human need and human suffering has a way of driving us back to the text, not to gerrymander it to our own likings, but to hear the heart of God and Jesus perhaps more closely. And the Matthean text softens Jesus. And the only thing I can imagine that was a human need. But in the Matthean text, Jesus is there and they ask him, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus says, have you not read that in the beginning God created the male and the female? Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. And he, by their estimation, politically shuck and jived and didn't answer them. And they pressed him. They would not let him politically escape and they pressed him. And they said, you know what, Rabbi? You're not gonna get out of this one because you may not wanna talk about it, but Moses sure talked about it. And Moses left us with a conundrum and we need you to answer it for for us. They were essentially saying, what do you think that word meant? Is it any cause? She burns the toast too much? Or is she sexually immoral? And upon being pressed the second time, Jesus looked at them and said, "'Verily I say to you, "'if a man divorces his wife for any cause "'other than," drum roll, please, "'other than pornaya, He uses a new Greek word to replace the old Hebrew word. And upon using parniah, which meant sexual immorality, Jesus did not again give his ultimate statement about this circumstance. He begrudgingly answered a technical theological question. You see that? At first, he was like, I don't I didn't want to answer your question. And they said, you're going to answer it. And he said, parniah, you like that? How do you feel now? Moses said, sexual uncleanness. And the conservatives, you know what they did? They said, we won, but did they really? We won, Jesus says, we're right. As the Pharisees walked away, the disciples looked at Jesus and they were so traumatized by what he had said. Evidently, these guys were liberals and thought, that they could divorce a woman for any cause, because when the Pharisees walked away, (laughs) the disciples looked at Jesus and said, man, if that's the case, we better not get married. Isn't that lovely? If we don't have complete latitude just to walk away. So the disciples were coming from the liberal camp. It's a very painful text, and I could talk about it a long time, because there's more nuance to it than that. But here's what I wanted to say. In the Corinthian text, which was actually written 25 years before the Matthean text and before the Gospel of Mark was written, in the early 50s, Paul receives this letter from a, a, a nascent fledgling church, and the question is, can a woman divorce her husband if he is an unbeliever? So you dig into the layers of that question, because there are many layers to that question. The context of Corinth, I can tell you, in that part of the Mediterranean Rim, and especially from what we know of Corinth, women did not have an easy time. They didn't. Um, In Corinth, we know in the first century that a woman couldn't even come into the front room of her house without making the request of her husband much less go into public places and uh, offer opinions about things, unless she had been sanctioned by some religious council, which rarely happened. So women had a tough time in this culture. And in the little Corinthian church, there were Corinthian women who worshiped the pagan gods who were converting and becoming Christians. And Christianity at that time, as you might know, had fallen into a place of disfavor with the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire liked the pantheon of gods and they didn't mind if your god fit into their pantheon of gods but you could not hold your god over and against their gods and because we were coming from a very monotheistic place, the Roman government did not like our claim to Jesus as king. And so the Christian church in spots, not universally, but in spots, was experiencing some pretty severe persecution. And we can see in Greece that there was severe persecution. Uh, The Jewish people, not so much. Even though they were monotheistic, one thing the Roman government had an appreciation for was old religions with a lot of heritage. You know why? Because old religions with a lot of heritage didn't create as many zealots as new religions did. And so there was no no upsetting of the apple cart. But Christianity was a new religion. And as a new religion, it drew the ire of the empire. So now you've got a woman who's already living in a repressive life, one that is standard to her and she understands. But now she is converted to a new religion, this aberrant religion, this, this, this cultish religion, and her husband is not happy with this. Her husband's not happy at all with this. And so whatever constriction she may have been enduring, probably now in this new relationship where she is a converted person, her husband's displeasure may be creating a situation where she is experiencing abuse, even fevered pitches of abuse no eyes wide open scholar who understands the context of that time Lee looks at that text and says this is just a woman who now that she loves Jesus she wants somebody else who loves Jesus no this is a suffering soul and this was a big question first Peter's epistle is written by the Petrine community probably 50 years after Peter died. It is an accumulation of the writings of Peter applied to concepts. Most of the concepts that are applied to are, they are the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter are commentaries on Pauline theology. Because there were denominations in the early church and the Petrine following was one of those denominations. And so these epistles were written maybe as early as the uh, or as late as the first part of the second century, they're written to try to understand. Second Peter even ends by the writer saying, And we know our brother Paul is a great guy, but he's really hard to understand. And so you can read through, especially First Peter, and see that almost every part of that text is a commentary on something that Paul has said. And one of the commentaries is on slavery, another of the commentaries in the third chapter is on marriage, and both of those are commentaries on the chapter that I'm calling into question, 1 Corinthians 7. Years after Corinthians Corinthians is written, Peter corroborates Paul's idea by saying this in the second chapter. So this is the Petrine community saying, we are Pauline and we agree with Paul on this. Here it is on slavery, 1 Peter 2. Slaves, be submissive to your masters, even if they beat you without cause. Say it again. When anybody ever tells you, hey, the Bible is playing on this, tell them, yes, here's another one it's playing on, 1 Peter 2. Slaves, be submissive to your master. So slave, be submissive to your master, even if they beat you without cause. Why? For to this you were called by Christ. The third chapter begins, in the same way you wives be submissive to your husbands, softens the punch, but it's the same context. In the same way you wives be submissive to your husband, even if they are disobedient to the Lord. See, that's not, it's not a follower. This is somebody who's not following the Lord for in doing so you may win them when they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The idea, these two stories, suffering slaves and suffering women, sandwich around the central theme, position between them is this. For Christ has left us an example who when reviled, reviled not again, but entrusted himself into the hands of him who judges righteously. And all we like sheep are going astray, but have been brought home by the shepherd of our soul. In other words, Christ's crucifixion was suffering, but it was a redemptive suffering that even redeemed the people who exacted it on him. So the crucifixion of Jesus is being used to defend the idea that a slave, if they will submit to suffering and beating, may possibly win their slave owner, and that a woman doing the same could possibly win her husband. First Corinthians seven, which this is a commentary on, Paul says, if you are a slave, do not seek to be free, but abide in the state where God has called you. There's the word calling, just like in first Peter two. If you're a slave, don't seek to be free. No Harriet Tubman, no abolition, no emancipation, do not seek to be free, but abide in the place where God has called you. And if you are a widow, abide in the place where you are and do not seek to be married. And if you are a virgin and you can contain yourself, do not get married. Why, 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 why? Paul said because of the present crisis, which is best we can tell, Paul believed the crisis was the need to express the gospel in the context of the near coming of the Lord 2,000 years ago. There was another group that Paul said, you should abide where you are. Not just the slave, not just the virgin, not just the widow. The question came to him, and the question was, if this woman, most likely in an abusive situation, just like the slave. You see the kinship to 1 Peter 2 and 3, same deal. Can she divorce him? And Paul says, Paul says something that brings me back to the Bible, because these strict contextual edicts given in the first century to slaves and women, my progressive hermeneutic says, thank you, but we know better now. And we know better because we rest on the accumulation of hundreds of years of midrash, a growing consciousness and context. And unless we are allowed to read the Bible and taught to read the Bible that way, brothers and sisters, we have a damaging and dangerous religion. And some in this room, Jason, have been damaged by that. Paul said, concerning the question you asked me about, can a woman divorce her husband for any cause? Paul said, I have no... Now here's the key. I have no commandment no torah and i also have no word from the lord so what he just said was i have all of the hebrew scriptures and that question i don't have anything in the hebrew scriptures that applies to that question and as i searched the oral canon and tradition of jesus certainly knowing what he said about divorce and remarriage paul said as i consider this question i've got nothing How could Paul say, speaking of divorce and remarriage, how could he say there's nothing in Torah and nothing in Jesus that speaks to that? Well, it's a brilliant statement by a brilliant rabbi that I hope the Christian church will finally understand. And that is matters as difficult and complex as human relationships, broken human relationships and things like divorce. Those matters cannot be cross culturally and cross contextually cookie cut like every one of them is one size fits all. There are so many complexities in those situations. That Paul said to simply impose from a patriarchal society where men owned women. Or to impose from the time of Jesus a theological debate and the loss of the Hebrew word and the finding of it. To impose that on this hurting woman. Listen. If within 20 years removed from Jesus, Paul was saying everything he said about divorce and remarriage. Within 20 years, Paul was saying here is a new context and that doesn't apply specifically. If that happened, Buck, within 20 years, what's 2,000 years do? What does 2,000 years do to consciousness and context, Chris, if 20 years so radically changed that Paul had to say, I have nothing, but he didn't have nothing? He had what we have and that's when my conservative friends say you're not a Christian You don't love the Bible I look at them and say I am and I do and I wish you would love it as much as I love it because if you love it this much you'll see what it's actually saying and that was rude but sometimes I feel rude back <laughs> and it was condescending but sometimes I can't help it I try to be nice but the reality is Paul did not give us a final answer any more than Jesus or Moses did, Drew. He gave us a method. And the method was to look at human pain, a woman being abused, and say, I cannot take Matthew 18 and I cannot take Deuteronomy 24 because there has been a material change in circumstances. People are now intermarrying religiously. Greek culture... Repression. So Paul gave us this, and it is what the church should possess and step into every day. And it scares the conservative to death. Paul said, I do not have a commandment and I do not have a word from the Lord, but I speak by permission under the auspices of God's mercy regarding this circumstance to give what Paul called an opinion. And Paul gave his opinion to that woman. And he closed that chapter, Tanner, by saying, I think I have the mind of the spirit. I don't know, but I think. And that is called pastoral, not just for pastors, but for the church, pastoral license to speak to human pain. Now, albeit, this was the conclusion that Paul came to. If that unbeliever chooses to stay with her, then she should stay with him, because in staying with him, she may actually set him apart to be saved. But if the unbeliever chooses to leave her, she is free to marry. The thing that was not asked then, just like we did not have the questions to ask of slavery then, but a growing human consciousness increases, not simply answers, a growing human consciousness increases our capacity for better questions. And the Apostle Paul in the first century took license and gave an opinion And Peter corroborated that, and the opinion was, if you are a slave, do not seek to be free, abide in the place where you are, and even if your master beats you without cause, submit to him, for in doing so, you may redeem him. In the same way, you wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, even if they are unbelievers and are disobedient to the Lord. And the phrase that they could not choke out but was certainly there, even if you are abused. And we held slaves in our country to that until 1865. And interestingly, the emancipation of abused women did not begin to occur until this hermeneutic began to be pressed through in the 1970s and 80s. We released male African Americans and almost immediately gave them a vote. The Caucasian women who owned them did not get a vote for another 60 to 70 years. We have a long history with our book of reading it and using it abusively. And in the middle of the Bible belt, in the stem of the buckle of the Bible belt, after 33 years of ministry and 49 years of life and everything inside of me at times wanting to run from this as far as I can, Jennifer, I still believe that the seeds of our reformation as a Christian church are within us and within our book. But we have got to grow up, we've got to mature. And we've got to read this book the way it's intended to be read. Can you say amen? Amen. You didn't know you was coming to college this morning, did you? But brothers and sisters, do you see how important this is? This is the way forward for the Christian church. This is the way forward for the Bible. This is the way forward for us as humanity. And so now when someone says, how do you feel about an abused woman? I say she needs to get out. And somebody said, that's not what Paul said. And I remind them, well, Paul said, that's not what Jesus said. And Jesus said, that's not what Moses said. Paul didn't give me the final answer. He gave me the method to find the answer for my culture and context. And brothers and sisters, that is a brilliant piece of sacred literature. Can you say amen? Let's bow our heads and let's just sit for a moment with this. We who are angry with the Bible, scared of the Bible, and yet long for the Bible in ways that we don't understand, and some of us even who love the Bible. May we find the graciousness and the goodness of God. May we find in this book not chains and bars, but keys and emancipations. May we find in this book the beauty and the brilliance that is here, just as we may find in Christ the beauty who is always, the beauty that has always been in him. And may we find this, O God, to be true of you, beautiful one, gorgeous one, lovely one. May we tell the story straight, may we tell the story right. We pray these things in the name of Christ and God's people said, Amen. God bless you. You want to do some more of that in-depth? Wednesday night. It's called Midrash. We get down to it. God bless you. Go read the Bible. It's not so bad.